0: A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a
0: thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, get 30, 30, better get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a
1: try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: George Adomski bounced in his seat as the car rumbled down an isolated desert road. He was sandwiched between two
0: aliens one from Saturn, the other from Mars. The aliens had told George they were taking him to see his friend from Venus, but they had left the lights of the city behind nearly two hours ago, and in the 15 minutes they'd been driving on the narrow dirt road, George hadn't seen any sign of civilization. As the car crested over a hill, George noticed a glowing
1: object in the distance. As they got closer he could make out the object's distinct saucer-like shape. He recognized it as the ship
0: belonging to his Venusian friend. The car came to a stop about 50 feet from the flying saucer. The Venusian came out to greet them. He beckoned for George to come aboard. George couldn't believe his luck.
1: He was actually going to see the inside of a flying saucer.
0: The alien smiled as George took in his surroundings with childlike wonder. They asked him to take a seat on a bench in the middle of the saucer's large circular cockpit. They told George they had another surprise for him in store.
1: They weren't just showing him the inside of their ship. They were going to take him into outer space.
0: Are we alone? Have we been alone? Will we be alone? Stories of alien visitation have been ingrained in human history. Alien life may not be confirmed, but our obsession with it can't be ignored.
1: Welcome to Extraterrestrial on the ParCast Network.
0: I'm Tim. And I'm Bill. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about our encounters with beings
1: from another world. We're aware that some of these tales may seem completely unbelievable. Others may seem all too real. But these stories shed light on human nature, human beliefs, and human psychology. And each story has garnered hundreds, if not millions, of true believers. And for that reason, we think they're worth exploring. Welcome to our second episode on George Adamski, who birthed the alien contactee movement when he claimed to have met a Venusian alien on November 20th, 1953.
0: Last week, we described how George's obsession with obtaining the perfect photo of a UFO supposedly led to something far greater, an actual face-to-face meeting with a being he claimed was an
1: alien from Venus. This alleged encounter, chronicled in George's 1953 book, The Flying Saucers Have Landed, which also included detailed photos of the alien's flying saucer, propelled him to worldwide fame and placed him at the forefront of the UFO world. But not everyone who heard his story was ready to believe it. This week, we'll
0: explore the fallout from George's book. Will his reputation survive the intense scrutiny of government authorities and UFO skeptics? Or will he be proven to be nothing more than a glory-seeking imposter?
1: In the fall of 1953, George Adamski was the biggest name in the UFO world. Eventually, word of George's incredible story caught the attention of Edward J. Ruppelt, the head of Project Blue Book, the US government's official task force for studying the UFO phenomenon.
0: Ruppelt was already aware of George. George had sent many of his previous UFO photos to the Project Blue Book offices, but analysis proved
1: inconclusive. When Ruppelt heard about George's meeting with the Venusian alien, he decided to investigate the matter himself. He was skeptical of George's story, but the uproar it was causing merited closer observation
0: ruppelt described meeting george in his 1956 book the report on unidentified flying objects sometime in 1953 ruppelt traveled incognito to the small hamburger stand where george worked in the shadow of the grand observatory on the summit of southern california's mount palomar
1: ruppelt was surprised to see how crowded the hamburger stand was he knew word had spread of george's incredible story but he couldn't believe how many people had come to hear it for themselves. But if George's fame had gone to his head, he didn't show it. He bustled around the hamburger stand as if it was any other day, serving customers and cleaning tables. Finally, George settled onto a
0: stool in the middle of the room and began to tell his story. Despite his skepticism, Ruppelt found himself drawn in by George's homespun charisma. He spoke plainly, almost as if he didn't believe the story himself but the conviction in george's eyes spoke to his belief that he was
1: telling the truth by the time george was finished speaking everyone was hanging on his every word their hamburgers getting cold their beers
0: getting warm after george finished his story he took an old shoebox out from under the counter Inside was one of the plaster casts that his friend, George Williamson, had taken of the alien's footprints. Instead of tread marks, the alien's boot prints featured mysterious symbols that seemed to be from some sort of alien language. Although Ruppelt had
1: enjoyed George's story, he didn't find it believable, and the plaster casts did little to sway him. Not only did he find it awfully convenient that George's friend just so happened to take plaster with him on their desert excursion, Ruppelt also wondered how the alien could have left such a clear imprint in
0: the dry desert ground. It seemed like Ruppelt was the only person left in the hamburger stand who questioned George's story. As Ruppelt headed out, people were lined up to ask George for more details and to buy the copies of George's UFO photos that he had for sale. Although Ruppelt suspected
1: George was lying about meeting the alien, he didn't have enough proof to definitively take George down. For now, George would remain on the UFO
0: world's proverbial mountaintop. But soon, George became the target of a much more thorough investigation conducted by an up-and-coming UFO researcher named James Mosley. In 1948,
1: 17-year-old Mosley became interested in UFOs when he heard the story of a pilot named Thomas Mantell, whose plane had crashed after supposedly
0: being zapped by a UFO. After leaving college in the early 1950s, Mosley was hungry to make a name for himself. He felt like there was an opportunity within the UFO community. While there were a few people writing
1: about UFOs at the time, There weren't any books thoroughly investigating UFOs with a critical eye. Mosley thought he could fill that gap with an in-depth investigation into some of the most prominent figures in the UFO community.
0: First up on his list, George Adamski. Although Mosley was inclined to believe in UFOs, he thought George's story was too good
1: to be true. But Mosley knew that he couldn't just drive up to George's hamburger stand and get him to admit he lied. If he was going to prove George was a fraud, Mosley had to take his story apart piece by piece until the whole
0: thing came crashing down. One of the biggest pieces of evidence George had in his favor was a signed affidavit from his friends who were with him the day he said he met the alien. Moseley wondered if they would maintain their story if he
1: spoke to them individually. Moseley began his investigation in the fall of 1953, a few months after The Flying Saucers Have Landed was published. His first stop was Winslow, Arizona, a small town off Route 66. Moseley sat down with George's friend Al Bailey, who worked for the Santa Fe Railroad. Bailey was accompanied by a man named Lyman Streeter, who also claimed to have seen UFOs on separate occasions, although he hadn't been there the day George said he
0: met the Venusian. Mosley thought that both men seemed exceedingly nervous. Streeter was so paranoid that he wouldn't even tell Mosley his name at first. It was as if they feared George would somehow find out about the interview and punish them. Bailey reluctantly admitted that he never actually saw
1: the alien or his flying saucer. During George's supposed meeting with the alien, Bailey and the others were over a mile away. As Bailey watched George through an old pair of binoculars, all he saw was a flash of light that he thought could have been a reflection from the flying saucer inspired
0: by bailey's honesty streeter added that a photo in george's book called flying saucer passing low over trees was wrongly attributed to a man named gerald baker streeter claimed that george had credited baker with the photo in order to make it look like other people had also photographed the venusians flying saucer mosley could scarcely believe what he was hearing
1: It was his first interview, and George's story was already losing credibility. But at this point, it was Bailey and Streeter's word against George's. Mosley needed more information before he could make a definitive judgment.
0: Mosley's next interview was with Dr. George Williamson in Prescott, Arizona. From the moment they sat down, alarm bells started going off in Mosley's head. Similar to George's unearned title of professor, Williamson wasn't actually an accredited doctor. The title was merely an affectation he had given himself. At first, Williamson
1: resolutely stood by the affidavit and said if he was asked to sign it again, he would. But when Mosley pressed him for more details, Williamson admitted that he had watched George's meeting with the alien through low-powered binoculars and hadn't gotten a good look at the alien or his flying saucer.
0: All he had seen was, quote, someone who could have been anyone nearby something that might have been a saucer, end quote. Mosley thought that Williamson didn't sound entirely convinced of what he was
1: saying. However, Mosley couldn't get Williamson to say George was a liar. George was his friend and mentor, and Williamson couldn't believe that George would ever lie for his own gain. But Mosley suspected
0: otherwise. Mosley was convinced that he had to dig deeper. If he was going to take George Adamski down, he needed surefire proof that he was a liar, and that proof lay in George's photographs. Mosley arrived
1: in Carlsbad, California, in December 1953. He wanted to talk to D.J. Detweiler, the man who had developed George's UFO
0: photos. Detweiler had met George about 10 years earlier when he went to photograph the hamburger stand where George worked. They had remained friends. Detweiler
1: said that George wasn't an experienced enough photographer to create a fake using advanced techniques. There was no sign that George had used manipulations like
0: a double exposure. Mosley pointed out that just because the photo hadn't been manipulated, it didn't mean that it was an authentic picture of a UFO. The object in the photograph might be some sort of model. Detweiler agreed, but like Al Bailey and George Williamson, he refused to call George an outright liar. Mosley's conversation with Detweiler left him
1: frustrated. He was really hoping to get a definitive answer on the authenticity of
0: George's photographs. Mosley was almost certain that George's story was a lie, but so far, nobody would just come out and say it. Mosley realized he needed to make the judgment for himself. It was time for him to interview George Adamski. Coming up, James Mosley faces off with George Adamski. Ryan Reynolds here
1: from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
0: Reach them fast with IU Online's Accelerated Degree Programs. Our six- and eight-week courses are taught 100% online and can fit any schedule. Advance your career with a bachelor's in informatics. It only takes 10 minutes to apply. Earn an Indiana University degree that's valued around the world. Get started today at IU Online. And now,
1: back to the story. So far, James Mosley's investigation into George Adamski had turned up a lot of red flags. Many of George's associates admitted that there were inconsistencies in George's story, and Mosley was having doubts about the authenticity of George's
0: UFO photos. Mosley decided that he needed to speak to George himself in order to come to a conclusion. He wanted to see if George's supposed honesty and integrity held up in person. Mosley arrived at George's
1: hamburger stand on December 15, 1953. The parking lot was nearly full and the small hamburger stand was packed.
0: Mosley surveyed the hamburger stand's cramped interior. He saw George sitting at one of the four small tables deep in conversation with some fascinated patrons. It was clear
1: that nobody was
0: there for the food. Everyone's
1: eyes were on George. They wanted to hear his story, and he obliged
0: them. Soon enough, George took his place on a stool in the middle of the restaurant and began to hold court. Mosley was drawn in by George's charisma, just as Edward Ruppelt had been. George had a way of engaging with
1: his audience looking into their eyes and giving them a sense he was telling the story directly to each one of them. Mosley was no exception. After nearly
0: four hours, the crowd had finally dwindled down to just a few people. Mosley had to double-check his watch. He had barely noticed the time passing. The time had come for Mosley to make his move. He was
1: surprised at how nervous he was. When he had arrived, Mosley was full of confidence that he'd exposed George as a fraud. But now, he wasn't convinced that George was lying. The man radiated honesty with
0: every ounce of his being. Mosley moved through the handful of George's remaining audience and introduced himself. George greeted Mosley warmly. There was no sense of hostility or suspicion coming from George as they squeezed into a booth.
1: Before Mosley could start asking any questions, George Adamski took out a letter George Williamson had written to him. Williamson was warning that
0: Mosley was a snoop and not to be trusted. George laughed upon seeing Mosley's worried expression. He promised that he was much less suspicious than Williamson. George told Mosley to ask him anything he wished.
1: Mosley dove right in. Now that he was face to face with George, his previous trepidation had vanished. He had come for the truth,
0: and he was going to get it. The next hour was one of the most confounding in Mosley's life. For every one of George's logical answers to Mosley's questions, he would make an equally outrageous statement. For instance,
1: George was actually very humble about his Venusian story and said he knew it was difficult to believe. But then he went on to say that he had begun studying the fifth dimension with no explanation as to what that even meant. Mosley knew statements like this were pure hogwash, but when it came to George's story about his encounter with the Venusian, he wasn't so
0: sure anymore. It wasn't about the substance of George's answers. Logically, Mosley knew a lot of what George was saying didn't make sense but George was so certain of what he was saying. As Mosley put it,
1: quote, his attitude in the face of my obvious doubts was that of one who had been chosen to have a great truth revealed to him, a truth he had faith his doubting interviewer would someday come to accept,
0: quote. Eventually, the sun was going down and George was getting tired. Although he had remarkable energy, He was still a 62-year-old man. He regretfully told Mosley that he had to conclude the interview.
1: George walked Mosley back to his car. He told him he hoped Mosley would someday discover the truth of what he called the Space Brothers' message.
0: After the interview, Mosley sat in his car for a bit to write down his thoughts. Mosley printed these notes in his book, Shockingly Close to the Truth, confessions of a grave robbing Ufologist. quote several of his theories are definitely pseudo-scientific or crackpot and of course the facts he relates are still open to very serious doubt however i do not think Adomsky's account is a hoax at least not in the usual sense of the word if the account is untrue Adomsky is nevertheless sincere in relating it there is a very, very small possibility that Adovsky's account is a deliberate and unscrupulous hoax. There is a much greater chance that it was a psychological or so-called psychic experience. There is also a good chance that Adobsky may, in all good faith, be lying in order to expound doctrines and ideas he sincerely feels to be true. There is a fourth and final possibility and that, is that Adamski's account is true. And after meeting Adamski, I would say there is a very definite and real possibility that the incident really happened. end quote.
1: In these notes, Mosley perfectly captured the ability George had to sway people to his side. Mosley knew that the details of George’s story didn’t hold up, but George was so charismatic,
0: that Mosley felt compelled to defend him. However, it didn't take long for Mosley's conflicted feelings to change. Shortly after the interview, he obtained new evidence that cast significant doubt on George's story. Shortly after his interview with George, Mosley
1: finally got in touch with Gerald Baker, the man who had been falsely credited with a photo of the Venusian's UFO in George's book he confirmed to Mosley that it was George who really took the picture.
0: Initially, Baker had felt indebted to George because he was being allowed to live at George's campground rent-free. This is why he had agreed to take credit for the picture in the first place. But now, Baker was feeling guilty about his part in helping George spread his lies. Mosley was intrigued.
1: Now that he was away from George's spellbinding personality, his skepticism had returned. However, he still didn't have any concrete evidence that
0: George was a liar, but Baker did. Baker showed Mosley a letter that George had written to him on November 2nd, 1953. In the letter, George reminded Baker that the photo had been heavily publicized and that Baker's reputation within the UFO community would be ruined if he admitted the picture wasn't his. Mosley realized that this letter
1: probably wouldn't be enough to change the minds of George's diehard believers. But this was definitive proof that George wasn't above lying. And furthermore, it showed that he wasn't above making subtle threats to those
0: caught in his web of deceit. Despite what DJ Detweiler had said about the supposed authenticity of George's photos, Mosley was now certain that George faked them. If the photos were truly authentic, why was it so important for George to have Baker's independently taken photograph?
1: In late December 1953, Mosley contacted Dr. Walter Rydell, a senior project engineer at North American Aviation who was also part of a UFO club called the Civilian Saucer Investigation. As a science-minded man, Rydell did believe that UFOs could be ships from another planet, but was skeptical of the decidedly unscientific story put forth in George's book.
0: At Mosley's request, Dr. Rydell agreed to examine George's most famous UFO photograph using one of the high powered microscopes at his lab.
1: Mosley nervously awaited the results of Rydell's examination. This was Mosley's make or break moment. If Rydell concluded the picture was a fake, Mosley would have indisputable proof that George was a
0: liar. And then there was another possibility. What if Rydell said the photo was real? Would that mean George was actually telling the truth? After what felt like an eternity, Rydell finally
1: called Mosley. He had concluded beyond any doubt
0: that the photo was a fake. The picture was a low angle shot of the UFO, giving the viewer a clear look at what George identified as its circular landing gear. When Rydell took a closer look, he discovered that the landing gear was inscribed with General Electric's GE symbol. It wasn't landing gear, it was a light bulb. This was
1: it. This was the proof Mosley needed to make George's house of cards come tumbling down. Mosley breathed a sigh of relief. The photo was a fraud. And so was George. But if Mosley was going to take down George, he was going to do it right. He couldn't just go into the world waving around a hoaxed UFO photo and shouting that George was a liar. If Mosley was going
0: to convince George's followers that their idol was a fraud, he had to organize the findings from his investigations into a single coherent document. Over
1: the course of the next year, Mosley meticulously prepared his case against George. Finally, Mosley's expose, titled Some New Facts on the Flying Saucers Have Landed, was published in the January 1955 edition of a paranormal magazine called Nexus.
0: Mosley's comprehensive, thorough dismantling of George's story was so popular that the exposé was reprinted the following month. Mosley was
1: elated. He had achieved his goal of making a name for himself in the UFO community. Now, he could sit back and enjoy the fireworks as
0: George scrambled to defend himself. But George didn't take the bait. When asked to comment on Mosley's exposé, George would only say that Mosley was an agent of Wall Street who was only motivated by money. Mosley was perplexed. George's reaction was much
1: more muted than he had anticipated. He was expecting fire and fury.
0: What he got was the equivalent of a shoulder shrug. But behind the scenes, George knew he needed a strong response to Mosley's accusations. Although his core followers were sticking by his side, George knew they might abandon him if he didn't do something soon. Coming
1: up, George Adamski takes action.
0: Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. And now,
1: back to the story. For the first few months after James Mosley's expose, Georgia Domsky stayed quiet, But that didn't mean he wasn't taking action. The bomb dropped six months later, on June 1st, 1955, with the publication of George's second book,
0: Inside the Spaceships. This new book chronicled George's continuing extraterrestrial adventures, and it was a doozy. In the book, George described how on February 18th, 1953, He was overcome by an inexplicable urge to go to los angeles he immediately recognized it as the same feeling that had told him to go into the desert when he first met his friend from venus normally george was
1: reluctant to leave his home at palomar gardens but if his friend was calling to him
0: george knew he had to answer his summons with little else to guide him other than his intuition George checked into a downtown hotel and waited. He was certain that his friend would give him some sort of guidance.
1: George looked towards the hotel's entryway and saw two men approaching
0: him. He didn't recognize them, but they knew him. However, these weren't men. They were aliens. They introduced themselves as a Martian named Furcon and a Saturnian named Ramu george was surprised at their perfect
1: english and familiarity with human customs the aliens explained that as contact men it was their job to live among humans and become
0: comfortable navigating through society while george was pleased to meet the new aliens he was disappointed that his venusian friend wasn't there furcon and ramu told him not to worry The Venusian, whose name was Orthon, was waiting for them in the Mojave Desert. George jumped in
1: Furkan and Ramu's car without hesitation. He was eager to reunite with Orthon. Although their previous meeting had only lasted an hour, George felt a
0: close bond with the Venusian. Ramu skillfully guided them through the busy streets and onto the highway leaving the city. They drove for almost two hours, leaving Los Angeles' bright lights behind them. George marveled at the
1: desert's all-encompassing darkness. The only illumination came from the car's headlights and the starry,
0: moonless sky. Without warning, Ramu turned the car onto a narrow, dirt road. George gazed out
1: at the shadowy scrub brush and twisted Joshua trees as the car bounced
0: along the rough road for what seemed like an eternity. But all of a sudden, a gentle white glow appeared in the distance. For a moment, George thought it was the moon rising into the sky. But as they got closer, the glowing light materialized into the recognizable shape of Orthon's flying saucer. The moment Ramu parked the car, George jumped out and ran to meet his Venusian friend. As they greeted each other, George was surprised to hear Orthon speak in the same perfect English as his companions. When they had met in November, Orthon didn't speak any English at all.
1: George wondered how Orthon had learned the language so quickly, but he felt like it would be rude to ask. Orthon didn't seem to think it was a big deal
0: and never provided an explanation. Perhaps Orthon was just being modest and didn't want to brag to George about how quickly he could pick up new languages.
1: It's also possible that if George was making this whole thing up, it was easier to have Orthon speak English for storytelling purposes. After a few pleasantries,
0: Orthon invited George to board the flying saucer. George could scarcely believe it. Not only was he going to see the interior of a flying saucer, but he was going to take a ride in it. George was so engrossed
1: in examining the ship's intricate details that he didn't even feel it take to the skies. The ride was so smooth that there was almost no sense of movement
0: as the saucer soared through the atmosphere. As they ascended into the heavens, gazing down at Earth's pristine beauty, Orthon revealed the purpose of this visit. Although Orthon had communicated the dangers of nuclear weapons when they first met, he wanted to elaborate on why he was so worried about them.
1: Besides threatening the entire human race, Orthon said that these terrible weapons threatened the galaxy at large. In the event of full-scale nuclear war, the radiation would escape Earth's atmosphere and permeate into space, thereby threatening interstellar
0: travelers. From a modern scientific perspective, it's obvious that any radiation coming from Earth couldn't compare to what already comes from the Sun and other stars, Not to mention, space is vast. Couldn't the Venusians just fly around the Earth? But George was never one to let science get in
1: the way of a good story. By presenting what was likely his own fear of nuclear war as an issue of galactic importance, he gave it more legitimacy
0: in the eyes of his followers. George's book went on to describe the several UFO trips George took with Orthon, Furcon, and Ramu over the course of the next year. During these trips, the aliens taught George more about their civilization's peaceful way of life and how it could be applied to human society.
1: Throughout their conversations, the aliens also gave George a clearer picture of the galaxy at large. They told him that the solar system had 12 planets and that they were all inhabited. In fact, according to the aliens, every single planet in the galaxy becomes capable of
0: supporting intelligent life at some point. The aliens showed George one of these civilizations located on the far side of the moon. George's jaw
1: dropped as they passed over lush trees and towering mountains. Far below, he could see the human-like aliens going about their daily business. To think, advanced alien civilization existed
0: so close to Earth. Even in the 1950s, humans knew enough about the cosmos to understand these claims were clearly false. But that didn't stop people from buying George's book when it was released on June 1, 1955. Like George's first book, Inside the Spaceships was
1: a hit. Between the two books, George sold around 200,000 copies. He used the resulting money to finally leave the hamburger stand behind and moved into a large ranch house further up Palomar Mountain.
0: However, George didn't have much time to relax. Shortly after the book's publication, he set off on a speaking tour to share his story with UFO societies all around the world. It was six months after the scathing Mosley article, and yet George was doing better than ever.
1: George enthralled his audiences with the astonishing story of his
0: friendship with Orthon, Furkan, and Ramu. Many were inspired to come forward with their own stories of contact with friendly extraterrestrial beings similar to the ones George had met. One of these contactees was Elizabeth Klaurer, who frequent listeners may recall from previous episodes. But while
1: George was jet-setting around the world, James Mosley was preparing his next move. In the aftermath of Inside the Spaceships, other serious UFO researchers tried to take down George, but they had failed.
0: For instance, when former Project Blue Book chief Edward J. Ruppelt published his thoughts on George's story in his 1956 report on unidentified flying objects, he said he believed George was nothing more than a disingenuous showman whose story had no basis in reality.
1: But even Ruppelt, who was maybe the world's foremost authority on UFOs, was unable to diminish public enthusiasm for George's story.
0: Mosley couldn't help but grudgingly respect George's ability to withstand even the harshest skeptics. But he was still determined to take him down.
1: In October 1957, Mosley reprinted his exposé on George as an individual special issue of the bi-monthly magazine, Saucer News. He thought that if people were reminded of the holes in George's original story, maybe they'd start to question the development he described
0: within Inside the Flying Saucers. Although the reprint of the expose sold well, it didn't do much to dissuade George's supporters. Many of them were now pushing their own alien contact stories. If they abandoned George now, it would invite criticism of their own accounts. Mosley realized that he
1: could never take George down with facts and logic. If he wanted to expose George as a fraud, Mosley would have to stoop to George's level.
0: He'd have to fight dirty. Recently, Mosley had made the acquaintance of UFO researcher Gray Barker. Unlike Mosley, Barker didn't personally believe that UFOs were real, but the two of them agreed on one thing. George Adomsky was a fraud. After one particularly heavy
1: night of drinking, Mosley and Barker hatched a plan. They would use George's obsession with the illusion of authenticity against him. In order to enact their
0: plan, Mosley and Barker enlisted the help of their friend and fellow UFO researcher, James D. Villard. He had access to official US State Department letterhead through his father, who held a prestigious government position. About a month
1: later, in December 1957, George received a letter from someone named R.E. Straith, who claimed to be a part of the U.S. State Department's
0: Cultural Exchange Committee. The letter read as follows, quote, My dear professor, for the time being, let us consider this a personal letter and not to be construed as an official communication of the department. It will no doubt please you to know that the department has on file a great deal of confirmatory evidence bearing out your own claims, which as both of us must realize are controversial and have been disputed generally. While certainly the department cannot publicly confirm your experiences, it can, I believe, encourage your work and your communication of what you sincerely believe should be told to the American public, end
1: quote. George bought it hook lion and sinker he only made a cursory attempt to confirm the letter's authenticity before he began proudly showing it off at his speaking engagements mosley and barker
0: prepared to strike they hoped that once they revealed the letter was a fake george's reputation would take a massive hit it might not be enough to completely take him down but Maybe people would then begin to question the other fake evidence George had used to enhance his reputation. But then, the FBI came calling. Forging an official government letter was a serious offense, and somehow the FBI had traced it back to Mosley and Barker. Luckily for them, James Villard's father was able to pull some strings on their behalf he convinced the agents investigating the case that it was a harmless prank and no charges were filed. However, this meant that
1: Mosley and Barker couldn't reveal that they had faked the letter. The FBI told George he had to stop showing the letter at his lectures as well. But there was nothing stopping George from letting the word spread amongst his followers that someone at the State Department had confirmed that his alien contact
0: stories were real. Mosley's plan had completely backfired. People were more interested in George's story than ever, and they were still willing to pay him to hear it in the US and abroad. In 1959,
1: George embarked on a speaking tour of Europe. It was during this trip that he met with Queen Juliana of Holland. The meeting was widely panned in the press but his supporters held the meeting up as
0: further proof of George's legitimacy. But George wasn't content to merely coast on the support of his followers. He wanted to fight back against his critics as well. In George's next book, 1961's Flying Saucers Farewell, he included a chapter meant to answer his skeptics' questions.
1: To those who said Venus couldn't support life, George pointed out that water vapor had been discovered in the planet's atmosphere. However, he conveniently left out that Venus's incredibly hot surface temperatures and crushing atmospheric pressure made the existence of life on the planet impossible.
0: His answer for how the moon could somehow support life was similarly incomplete george referenced an aviation week magazine article that reported the moon is enveloped by a blanket of low energy ionized gases but he didn't explain how that thin layer of gas could support an entire
1: ecosystem unsurprisingly these explanations were sufficient for george's followers whose loyalty to him outweighed the dubious answers he had provided as long as george had his followers in his corner It didn't matter what the skeptics said. But George was getting older, and he was having trouble keeping his story straight. In Flying Saucer's Farewell, George wrote that the aliens told him in 1953 how the sun could transmit its energy to far-off planets. Even though it was proven in the 1930s that the sun's heat comes from nuclear fusion, George said that the sun worked like the cathode ray tubes used in television sets. However, in 1963, George claimed that the sun was actually dark and that it emitted a sort of far-reaching black light. A few months after that, he explained that the sun wasn't really a high-temperature ball of gas. It was a solid body, and its atmosphere just gave it the illusion of being illuminated. For the first time,
0: George's followers began to doubt him. But the problem wasn't that they didn't believe what George was telling them. It was that his story kept changing for no apparent reason. They hoped George's advancing age and poor health accounted for his inconsistencies. George celebrated his 74th birthday
1: on April 17th, 1965. When he blew out his candles, two stayed lit. To anyone else, this might have only resulted in mild annoyance, but to George, it was a sign. He was a heavy smoker and drinker, and his health was in decline. George decided the number two was surely related to his death. He predicted he had two months, two weeks, or two days to live.
0: It turned out he only had six days. On April 23rd, George suffered a heart attack after giving a lecture in Maryland. George was rushed to a nearby hospital, but there was nothing that doctors could do. He never regained consciousness and died later that day. After George's death, his close friend,
1: Alice K. Wells, started the Adamski Foundation, which was dedicated to carrying on George's work and the contactee movement. It's still in operation today. Despite the attempts of critics such as James Mosley to discredit him,
0: George Adamski's legacy lives on. But George's legacy doesn't mean much if he was a total fraud. In hindsight, the facts seem to speak for themselves. George's extraterrestrial experiences
1: contradicted scientific knowledge at every turn, and nearly every piece of evidence he provided to support his story has been debunked. But
0: what if we view his story through a less literal and more figurative lens? Many UFO researchers have tried to parse George's words to see if there's a kernel of truth to them. One suggestion is that George's alien friends didn't mean they actually lived on inhospitable planets, such as Venus, Mars, or Saturn, but rather they operated bases on those planets.
1: This suggestion feels more like wishful thinking. George never mentioned any alien bases in his writings. During his alleged interstellar trips, he specifically describes seeing active, thriving communities in places such as the moon that are totally incapable of supporting life.
0: In the end, the most likely explanation is that George Adamski used the popularity of the UFO movement for his own profit. Although George insisted he never made much money off his UFO endeavors, The large ranch house he moved into after publishing his second book indicates otherwise.
1: Ultimately, we'll give George's story a 1 out of 10 on the believability scale. There's just too much evidence that directly contradicts his narrative.
0: It's clear that George Adamski never met an alien from Venus, and he never set foot inside a flying saucer. In the end, George
1: was little more than a cunning con artist. Just like his assumed title of professor, George Adamski's story was a complete
0: fabrication. Thanks for listening to our story on George Adamski, the father of the alien contactee movement. You can listen to
1: Extraterrestrial and all of ParCast's other shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Extraterrestrial was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admeyer and Carly Madden. Extraterrestrial is written by Alex Benedin and stars Bill Thomas and Tim Johnson.